As you opening to Acts 26, let us pray. Let us pray. Go before the throne of grace together um, as God's people, as God's children. Father, we, we continue in worship. Our worship hasn't ended the moment the last note was sung. Our worship continues. Our worship is, is what your people are pleased to, to do. It's our, it's our act of worship, Lord, even as we listen, as we not just listen, Lord, but apply your word to our hearts. Lord, we know that we are bombarded, I mean, with social media and news and, and just all the things that are happening, the turmoil that's happening, uh, not just in our country, but even abroad. But Lord, thank you that we have a gospel, a gospel of hope, a gospel of peace, of tranquility, because of the one that shed his life on the cross for us. Who is our hope? The Lord Jesus. And it is him that I desire to proclaim. It is Christ that I desire that your people hold on to and, and, and cling to. The gospel message, Lord. So help us now, Lord, to apply your word to our hearts, not just be hearers. Uh, doers of your word. And I even uh, lift up uh, Edwin as he's in the DR preaching, Lord. May you continually use our brother as you used him here many years in our, in our congregation, Lord. May the people that are listening to, to the gospel message uh, through him, may they be encouraged and may Christ be exalted. In the name of Jesus, we, we pray these things. Amen. Just, uh, by the way, just to remind you, we will have a, a couple of testimonies after the, the service, so just kind of bear with us. Um, this is not something that we do every Sunday, but if you're visiting with us, this is what part of our process, and we'll explain that later on, but just wanted to let you know. Um, many of you are approaching, um, at least when you, when you get to the end of the school year, there's all these accolades. There's all these awards that are given out. You guys know what those are, what those are like for some of you working. Um, in sales, you might get awards, right? Recognitions, you know, who, who made the most sales at the end of the year, who, who met the benchmark, who made the quota, who did what they had to do, right? And, and you get recognized for those things maybe at the end of the year banquet. Again, it's very common. It's not something that's foreign to us. Uh, referring to kids, you guys get this at the end of the school year, right? Who had the highest grade? Who had the, the greatest... Uh, Achievement. Um, sports teams do this, right? Uh, who's the MVP? Who's the defensive player of the year? Who's the most improved player? You, you get all these things. But when it comes to Christianity, we know that our works are what? Are filthy rags. They don't count for anything, right? And many times it's hard to, to see ourselves and understand, well, why, why do anything at all? Right? And this is a very common feeling or sentiment, if I may put it that way, even that, that, ten, that tends to permeate even in Reformed theology. The, the word frozen, chosen, is not there just by accident. It's there because many times we become frozen in our own theology. We become, like, in other words, we know that there's nothing that I can do to gain salvation, so then, should I do anything at all? I mean, the Lord saved me. The Lord knows who He's going to save. So let me just kind of pull my hands, go to church every Sunday, go to Bible study, pray, lead my family, and wait for the Lord to call me home. But I would submit to you that it's quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Scripture actually teaches the opposite. 
There's nowhere in Scripture where it says, well, well once you're saved, kick your feet up. You're not going to find that in Scripture. As a matter of fact, through all of Acts, what have you seen Paul doing? Going from one city to another, to another, to another. Being dragged. Again, this, this is the same thing. And, and, I, and I'm purposely reminding us of these things because we're getting to the end. Paul is in prison. Paul is, is being held. He's before Agrippa now. And we saw the first part. And the first part uh, that, we, that last time that, that I preached on was what is God up to? And he was setting up this opportunity where Paul had been before the Sanhedrin. Paul has been before the, the council. He's been before Felix, before Festus. And now he's before King Agrippa. And he's appealed to Caesar. And we need to be aware that Paul has this part. He's saying, you know what? I, I am in chains. And we're going to see that in the text this morning. I am in chains. There's still the gospel needs to be preached, right? I mean, the Westminster Catechism question, well, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? If it's not to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We know that. We believe that. How does that practically play out in our lives? How does that play out in your life, Sunday to Sunday? How are you glorifying God and enjoying him forever? Or does the enjoyment start when he calls you home? Or is that joy present today in your life, in your walk with the Lord? And so we need to be, my, and for us it's very easy in our faith, in our Reformed faith, ah, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. It's easy to say those things. But what does that look like in our daily life? So what is God up to? The second part now. This gospel of undeserved grace is being proclaimed. This gospel of undeserved grace is being proclaimed once again. And this is the text that we find here this morning. If you're there, Acts 26. Acts 26. I'm going to read the entire uh, chapter. It says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest part of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them in foreign cities. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
it is hard for you to kick against the goad. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Arise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to great and small, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And he was saying these things in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophet? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would, whether short or long, I would to God that only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these things. Then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is a reading of God's word. It's, um, and again, it's easy to read this and immediately say, well, yeah, it's all about Paul and he shouldn't be in prison and Paul's in prison. But notice that that is not even the point of Paul in this text and what Luke is writing about. The central figure in this passage is Jesus. Why does Paul recount once again what we've heard over and over again in the previous chapters? Why do we hear this once again? Once again? It's precisely because this is what we need to be reminded of. And so my outline, my outline for, for us this morning is knowledge of the truth does not equal believing the truth. We see this in the first seven verses, just kind of recapping what we saw last time. Point two is belief in God requires divine intervention, verses 8 through 15. Belief in God requires divine intervention. Point three, God intervened and extended his grace and mercy to me. Now what? Now what? Verses 16 through 20. And point four, the gospel for small 
and grace. That's those are four, four points this morning. So the first point, knowledge of the truth is not equal believing the truth. Everyone kind of rehashes the time before that. I had also, when the last time I preached, I mentioned this. There's a clear distinction between knowing the truth and believing the truth. Edwin mentioned it with Karl Marx, right? You saw that beautiful thesis or dissertation that Karl Marx had. Beautiful explanation of the gospel and what he believed. But he didn't know the Lord, right? So it's easy to go ahead and say these things and proclaim these things. But do we believe it is a different question. And that is something that we have to always be mindful of. Notice that Paul, at the beginning, says, King Agrippa. He's very, Luke is writing to the, fact, to the fact that Agrippa knows the truth. He knows everything about Jewish history. He's a Jew himself. King Agrippa, you know who his ancestors were? Herod Antipas. You know who they were, right? You know what Herod did. What did Herod do? He had all the children, two years and younger, slain. When Jesus was born, why? To get rid of him. Because of what he had heard. Those are, those are King Agrippa's ancestors. And not far removed, just a couple of generations before him. You can read that in Matthew 2. So King Agrippa is familiar with Jewish history. He knows what's going on. He is not oblivious to these things. And Paul is actually saying, I know you know these things. And I know you believe these things. I'm not, I'm, there's no question or doubt in my mind. And Paul goes on to say, I know the promises that were made to our fathers. I know the hope that was made to them. I know what was, what was said to them. I know, and you know. And so Paul is, is on trial, not for being Jewish, but for believing in the Messiah, for believing in the Christ, for believing in the one that was promised, the one who was raised from the dead. That is why Paul is on trial in the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul needs to go ahead and he's given his defense. Now my question to you is, what's the difference between Paul and King Agrippa? Just their title? Why can Paul proclaim these things and Agrippa be so far off? Well, not far off, but unbelieving. What's the difference? Is it because Paul was somehow better than Agrippa? What's the difference between you and your coworker? What's the difference between you and your loved one that doesn't know Christ? What's the difference? It's not because you come to church. It's not because you read your Bible. It's all of God's grace. It's all of undeserved grace. That's the difference. That He extended His grace to you. And when we understand these things, Romans 9, Romans 11, I mean, you, you can go back, it's all through Scripture. And you can even go back to, Ju- to, to Judaism. Why did, Paul even, uh, why did God even choose Jerusalem, uh, Israel? Not because they were the best. Not because they were the most numerous. Deuteronomy 7 tells us that he chose them because they were the smallest. There was actually nothing appealing about them. And precisely the same applies to you and to me. He didn't choose us because there was something appealing about you or because you were more righteous. Quite the contrary. You received God's 
undeserved grace. His mercy was extended to you. Beloved, that is something to be joyous about. But that should also keep you grounded so that you don't think for a second that you're more deserving of His grace and of His mercy so that you don't boast. That's the purpose of Ephesians 2. So that no one can glory in Him because salvation belongs to Him and Him alone. So, we can be joyous, but Lord, keep me grounded. Because I know I did nothing to deserve this grace. But that isn't fair. I, I, I can, you might not be saying it, but you might be thinking, oh yeah, he served me, but why, why can't he show my loved one you know, the same grace that he extended to me? God is so unfair. Is he? Is he? Because if he really is unfair, if, if you really want God's fairness, and we've said this before, and we've seen it throughout Acts, See it throughout Scripture. If you really want God's fairness, you really are asking for His justice. And if you really want His justice, then get ready. Because none of us are going to heaven. Just on our merit alone, none of us will see heaven. If anything, we'll see the complete opposite. The, the complete opposite to heaven. We will see eternal separation from God. If we really want God's justice and fairness. Because God is not obligated to save anyone, is he? I mean, if you think that, I would be pleased to sit with you and, and have you show me that in Scripture. Where, is, where does God owe us anything? Nowhere in Scripture. You don't see that. It's foreign to Scripture. We are part of God's family solely by his grace. And I know. Every analogy falls apart, falls apart at some point. But have you ever considered it? Most of you have been in school. Some of you are still in school. Do you remember what that's like when they're picking teams? When you have two captains? What, hap- what happens when those two captains start picking teams? I want this person. The other one goes, I want that one and that one and that one. And then you see the two, the two little kids that are the last ones. Man, who's going to pick that? And you, know, <laughs> and you know the one that doesn't get picked is the one that really nobody wanted. And, but you can look at these captains and you're saying, okay, well, they're making an evaluation in their mind. Who is the most skilled? Who can put my team in the better position when I pick each player, right? Because you want to position yourself to win. That is a complete opposite. When he chose it, he didn't choose you because you were the most skilled. He didn't choose you to be part of his family because you were the most able. You were actually the last one there that nobody wanted. And that's the one that he saw. Think of David. Was there anything appealing about David? Scripture doesn't say that David was the most bright. and the, He was actually the one that was out in the field that nobody wanted. He was doing the, the, you know, the, his father's labor out there in the field, and that's the one that God went after. And that's the one that he said, he's a man after my own heart. So this is what we need to understand, that salvation. It's not like picking those teams and those captains. Those captains picking teams, rather. It's solely by God's grace. And knowing the truth is not the same as believing it. Do you believe that salvation is solely by undeserved grace and mercy that God extends to his people, or to people in general? Point two, belief in God requires divine intervention, verses 8 through 15. You immediately see the first observation. What is Paul doing when Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus? 
What was Paul doing? He didn't just deliver a great sermon. He didn't just do some amazing work. He was actually on his way as a Jewish rabbi to, consider, to continue persecuting people. And by the way, he had, Stephen had just been martyred. Stephen had just been martyred. And, that, and Paul is continuing. He's not stopping. He's continuing on that road. I'm going to continue persecuting more. But why does God? He intervenes. Everybody wants a Damascus Road experience. Everybody would love to have that. But every experience, whether you are a believer, if you are a believer, requires God to intervene in your life. This isn't just a feeling. This isn't just, ah, oh, you know, I feel like I'm saved. I'm... Because quite frankly, there's moments where you're not going to feel like you're saved. And there's moments that you realize, I don't deserve any of this. So surely it's not by a feeling. What salvation is, is that God intervened in your life. Not when you wanted him to. It's, it's the words of C.S. Lewis, he was surprised by joy. It's, were you surprised by God? That joy that he comes into your life now. Because you've realized of who you are. That's exactly what we need to understand here. So if you're professing Christ, you need to understand that it's not your religiosity. Because Paul was quite religious, and he describes himself in Scripture as a Pharisee. It takes, as a second point, a divine encounter in verses 12 through 14. It takes a divine encounter. And what do I mean by encounter? See, Paul was a Jewish rabbi. He knew the Torah. There was nothing about the, 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 the Old Testament that Paul was not knowledgeable about. On the contrary, he knew it. He was learned. He, he was well-educated in Jewish history, in the Jewish scriptures, what we know as our Old Testament. But it took God to encounter him, to meet him. Just like it took God to meet you. Some of you thought that you and your religion, and, and I know for some of you who are younger, it's easy because you guys are raised hearing this day in and day out. Sunday after Sunday, you come to the church, you go to youth group, you, you, you go to Sunday school youth, and, and you see all these things, and you hear it over and over, and it's like a, a broken record, right? You hear it constantly. And somehow you think that because you were raised in church, and I hear it constantly, by the way. Why, why, why are you a Christian? Well, I've gone to church all my life. I was raised in the church. I don't care how, how raised your church, and, and, and it goes the same for, for my church. I don't care how raised you are in the church. It doesn't mean that you know the truth, that you believe the truth. It's two different um, experiences altogether. You've experienced religion is what you've experienced. But if you don't believe the truth, that's where you need to get to. 2 Corinthians 5.10 speaks to this. It's inescapable. We will all, when, when God counters, when we encounter the true living God, we have to give an answer. Either on this side of heaven, or on that day when he calls us home. When he calls us to stand before him. At some point, you will have to render an account. As much as I have to render an account. What will you be? It's inescapable. And so, 
And when I say this word encounter, I'm not talking about a physical encounter. I know sometimes we, 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 I'm, I'm not going into this whole charismatic and, and Pentecostal and you have to have a, a divine vision. Whatever encounter you have, and I, for instance, there's Muslims in other parts of the world that have come to know Christ through a vision, through dreams, especially through the time of Ramadan. You might have gotten a vision. But at the end of the day, that vision has to stand up to the scrutiny of Scripture. There is no other way. In other words, it's not my version of what I believe in that vision that I received from the Lord that stands. It's what Scripture tells me is true. Because otherwise, if, that, if I have to go ahead and accept that experience, and I also have to accept the, the one that, that was uh, in heaven for, for, for 90 minutes, and his experience, and what he saw when he was in heaven for 90 minutes. Then every thought and every experience is valid. And that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture tells us we have to ground ourselves. That's the purpose of Peter. That's what Peter's saying. We have a more sure word. We have a prophetic word that's, that we can stand on, that we can hold to. That we don't, ha- we, we don't have to move depending on the mood of our culture and what the, what the church is now saying and, and all these things that, that are... Now you have LGBTQ and, and all these things and the church embracing all these things. So because the church says it, therefore it must be. No. We stand to what Scripture says. And that is what we hold on to. And that is your hope. I know some of you might be wondering, but he didn't appear to me. <laughs> I've been asking, I've been waiting, and I've been asking him, Lord, show me. And in the meantime, I don't put my faith in him because I'm waiting for him to show me. No, 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 no. Can you imagine just for a second that you go up before God and you say, well, you never showed me. I asked you for a sign and you never showed me a sign. What's God's response going to be to you? Didn't you sit and, and hear the word Sunday after Sunday? Didn't you read the scriptures over and over again? What do, you think you were, what do you think the scriptures were about? That you need a Savior. And that Christ is your only Savior. He's the only one that can redeem what we were talking about with the youth in Sunday school this morning. There's no redemption apart from Jesus. He is our redemption. And that is when you start understanding that you say, wait a second, that is the message I, I was hearing Sunday after Sunday. That is the message that my parents would sit down and when I would get in trouble that they would tell me, you need to look to Jesus. You need to turn to Christ. But you didn't heed what they were telling you. You didn't heed what was being proclaimed on Sunday or what was being taught to you in Sunday school or even in your, in your uh, if you go to a, to a Christian school or private school, you didn't heed any of that. But one thing you will not be able to say on that day is, you never showed me. It will not hold water. Because God has, and even this morning, once again, the call is going forth. Do you realize the problem is not that God didn't show you. The problem is, Romans 1, that you suppress the truth. That you and I would want to go ahead and push that down and suppress it to the point where, like, I don't even want to recognize that it's there. It's there. But I want to make myself, I want to psych myself out to think that it's not there. Why? 
You don't have to give an account. You can go ahead and do what you want to do. That's the complete opposite. So that is where you need to be reminded of that hope. And what is that hope? You guys know, in, I know you kids are in school, when the teacher assigns to you a math problem set, what are you hoping, what numbers do you want, odd or even? Do they still do this? I don't even know, because now everything's digital. But back in the day, for us, we were looking at the math book, and the teacher said, you guys have the odd problems. Because in the back, you had the entire book, you had the, in every problem set, every exercise, the odd numbers were there. Oh, and the teacher didn't recognize it. Yeah, I didn't realize they gave us the odd problems. Now I get to go ahead and cheat. The idea here is that it's not about cheating. The point is, is that our names, if you're in Christ, your name has already been written in that. It's you working out the problem, and all of a sudden you go back to that part and you say, wow, my name was written there all along. You see what I'm saying? So if you are struggling with, oh, did God elect me? Did God really choose me? There's only one way to You go to Him. You go to Him and you trust Him with your life, understanding that you are a sinner in need of grace. That is the purpose of it. Will your name be written? The Lord says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, doesn't He? He says today is a day of salvation, not tomorrow. Fine, yesterday went by. You have, a, you have grace today. You can come to Him today. So it requires divine intervention, but point three. So God intervenes. Now what? He extends his grace and mercy to you. Now what? Now what do you do? See, Paul in this text, after he's been going through his entire list, and he says that he has this encounter in Damascus on his road where he was blinded. What do you see there? That God is imperfect. Paul, is it that Paul. Thought he didn't have purpose before? No, he, he did have a purpose. What was his purpose? To persecute Christians. That was his purpose. I'm going to go ahead and kill them all. But now Jesus appears to him and he tells him, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting me. And instead, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just grab the baton and just hit him and wax him and says, you're persecuting me. How dare you? That's not what he does. He brings to light, Paul, this is what you're doing. What you're doing is sin. You're persecuting me. But notice the beautiful change. And then he says, but now I'm calling you. I'm giving you purpose. In other words, you're going to be a servant and a witness to what you have seen in me and what I will show you. I'm not here to tell you about a, a healthy and well prosperity. That's not, that's not my, my job, nor do I care for that because I don't believe that. But as believers, we have purpose. As a believer, you have purpose in your life. And the fact that Paul is going through this is a testament to the fact that Jesus is saying, you're a new creature now. Right? You've heard that. We've heard that constantly. 2 Corinthians 5.17 you're a new creation. All things are made new. Well, what does that mean? Just one day? No, even now. All things are made new. Yeah, when you are a creation, that's the whole symbol of baptism, isn't it? 
that you are buried in the likeness of death, death of Christ's death and rising out of the water, similar to his resurrection. In other words, symbolizing it's a new beginning. There's something new. That's what baptism symbolizes. Not that baptism saves you, but it's a symbol that there's a new beginning. Now notice this word, servant. It's very different. Because I know, if you thought like me, I'm like, man, servant. You know, wow, Jesus is our servant, right? Philippians 2. But the word servant that Paul uses, by the way, Paul writing to, to the Philippians, is the word doulos, which means slave. Jesus was a slave. He was a slave to the Father, in other words, of righteousness. Which is why when Jesus says, you will be slaves of righteousness, that is what he's referring to. In other words, we're slaves. But here, there's a different Greek word. It's hyperites, which is, means what? It's almost like this officer, this ranking. And what's beautiful is that it's, it's hard to not be able to, or to miss. Paul was an officer. He was a Jewish rabbi. We said it before, persecuting. He went from proclaimer, excuse me, from persecutor to proclaimer. And what is he doing now? He's going from this officer who was persecuting Christians, arresting them, bringing them under trial. And what is he doing now? When he's given purpose, he says, you're going to be a servant and a witness. In other words, you're going to be an officer. You're going to be an ambassador of setting people free with the gospel truth. That word, I mean, it's mind-boggling. As I was just reading, I was like, Lord, again, this, this change. This is who I was, and this is who I am now in Christ. That when I believe and I take you at your word, you're able to change this wicked heart and use it for good. Use it for your glory. Because before, I had nothing to do with you. I didn't want anything to do with you. And now you've created this heart in me that now just wants to wants more of you, that seeks you, that desires you. And that is what Paul is doing. And this witness, that Greek word witness is, is, this, is the word martyr. It's the Greek word martyr. Where we get, what's a martyr? Someone that dies, that, again, someone that gets killed for their faith, right, for what they believe in. This is exactly what you're going to be a witness to me. An officer, bringing people, and you're also going to go ahead and, and be that martyr, the one that's, you're going to get beaten, you're going to get bruised, you're going to get, on that road to Damascus, this is what awaits you. But one thing that Jesus, and we saw this a couple of chapters ago, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. So why serve and witness about the things he had seen about Jesus? Why does Paul do this? Again, I want, I want this, because we know the truth, but can we practically apply it to our lives? I'm not here to feed more of your Reformed theology. I don't need you to be more spiritual college. We need to understand, and I'm not saying that that's irrelevant. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm simply saying is, we need to bring this home. We need to apply this. He says, you're going to be a servant and a witness to what end? To open their eyes. It implies that the Lord is opening the eyes of the blind. Why is amazing grace? What's the very first line of amazing grace? Why is it amazing? 
Because I was blind. Blind to what? Blind to my sin. Blind to your holiness. But now I see. I see what? Not just the cross, but what the cross means for me and my sin. That is why we enjoy singing Amazing Grace. At least I hope that's why you enjoy singing it. Because you can relate to it and say, this is what's happening. It's amazing because I was completely blind and completely oblivious to what my sin did and what my sin caused my Jesus to do. And he went to the cross. Excuse me, to the cross for me. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Ephesians 1, 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That is why he's opening your eyes. That's why he has opened your eyes. When you were able to see that. Now why have your eyes open? Well, so you can turn from darkness and the power of Satan. Beloved, there's only two categories. There's only two categories in life. Either you're in darkness or you're in light. Either you're in the power of Satan or in the power of God. There is no in-between. There is no straddling one foot here and one foot there. There isn't. You can't be straddling. There's no neutrality when it comes to the gospel. There is no gospel neutrality. He says to turn from darkness. That word, epistrophe, in other words, to believe. In other words, to make that U-turn. That is a U-turn that you as parents have told your kids, you need to turn away from your sin. You need to make that turn. To turn from your sin and from your darkness. But what is repentance? Because that's the other part that he says. Later on, it's that repentance. It's that metanoia. That change. When Paul says, or when Luke is writing, excuse me, that you have works that are in keeping with repentance. What is he referring to? That there are works that you have to exude in your life that manifest that you have come to know Christ. And it's not just a one-time work. It's not just a one-time thing. Not that your work obtains your righteousness. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that does your life reflect? Thank you. Does it reflect Christ? Does it reflect repentance? Does it reflect that you're clinging to Jesus? Because you're clinging to something. Either you're clinging to the gospel, or you're clinging to a lie. Or you're clinging to something. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is received in Christ. That is forgiveness. Acts 5.31, God exalted him, Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Beloved, I know that some of you, and I, and I mentioned it to the kids earlier this morning, I know some of you have heard and you've seen it on TV shows and maybe you've heard it from your psychologist or counselor. You know why you are the way you are? is because you haven't forgiven yourself. Love it. Show me one verse, just one. In scripture where God says you need to forgive yourself. 
Because scripture tells me that forgiveness is received, meaning it's given. And the one that's giving it is God. And he's the only one that can give it. No priest can go ahead and absolve you from your sins. Only God can. You, there's no amount of you forgiving yourself and trying to say, well, you know, I, I, it, that, that's why. No. Because sin is an assault on God's holiness. Sin is you, yes, missing the point. What's the point? Perfection. Holiness, that is what sin is. And so when you sin, you're sinning first and foremost against God. You may sin against your neighbor, yes, and you ask them for forgiveness, but the only reason you ask them for forgiveness is because you first realized that your sin was, was first against God. It was first vertical before it's horizontal. And that is what we need to understand, beloved. So if you've ever heard, oh, you haven't forgiven yourself, it's not true. You need to go to Jesus. You need to go to Him. He's the only one that can give you the forgiveness that you're seeking. And if you're struggling with that, the problem isn't what the forgiveness is given. It's with us that we don't believe. It's what Edwin spoke about last week, right? It's that idea that I have to somehow obtain it. I, did, I sinned against God, so therefore let me read my scripture. Let me read the Bible a little bit more. Let me pay attention on Sunday a little bit more. But you know how long that lasts? That only lasts until you feel like you've done enough. And then it's gone. And now you're back to the same path. Until the next time you sin. And the next time you sin, there you go again. Forgive me. I sinned. I feel really bad. Now I'm going to go back and read my Bible. Forgiveness is something that God gives, and we have to believe Him, even when I don't feel like it, even when it doesn't make sense in my mind. And that's more often than not. But He loves us. He takes care of us. And, he, and, his, and His forgiveness is not based on you, it's based on Christ. That's why He extends it. He doesn't extend forgiveness because you really, you really feel sorry. He extends it because of Jesus. Because He can look at no other place but the cross and say, who died on the cross was for Osborne was Jesus. That's why you're forgiven. The one that died on the cross for Freddie is Jesus. That's why he's forgiven. And he's put his faith and trust in none other than Jesus. That's why he's, that's why he's forgiven. Not because I, I feel like I need to do a little bit more to undo my sin. So yes, believers, you've been called to serve our Lord and testify of his wondrous grace. You've been called to do that. Question is, are you? Are you testifying of his, of his wondrous works? I, I believe in Reformed theology. I accept it. I embrace it. I, there's nothing that you can, and, I, and I've seen it, and, I, and we can have debates if you're not there, but I understand that salvation is a God alone. It's what we've been hearing for some time over the next couple of weeks. It's monergistic. It's not me contributing to my salvation. Salvation, he's the one that did it from beginning to end. Period. You want to go ahead and talk about predestination? You want to go ahead and talk about all those things? You're more than welcome to. You want to talk about election? You're more than welcome to. But is that, as a believer, if that is all your faith comes down to, then you are very, very off the mark. 
Because the Lord didn't save you so you can debate. The Lord didn't save you so you can go ahead and now go ahead and, 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 and get everybody on the same page with you about election. That is not why Christ saved you. You were saved to proclaim His glorious grace of what He did on the cross for you and for me. Let me tell you what He did for me. Are there moments where you can have those conversations? Yes. But if that is all you're coming to, then you've missed the point. Don't tell me that you're reformed. Don't tell me you are reformed. And then your orthopraxy, the way you live out your orthodoxy, is not congruent. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm simply suggesting is, are you applying what you've learned to be true? That is exactly what I'm saying. Are you applying what you know to be true? When God intervenes in your life, He's calling you to serve, to be His hands, to be His feet, to be His ambassador. Not for the doctrine of election. Not for the doctrine of predestination. But for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why He adopted you. That's why you're adopted. And you can go ahead and proclaim that beautifully and, and perfectly. And yes, you might make mistakes and whatever, but that's the heart. That is where you have to be. And finally, the gospel is for small and great. Verses 21 to 32, you have Paul simply saying, Hey, I'm giving you the gospel. I know you know these things, Agrippa. Notice that you have Festus. What does Festus say? Paul, you must be out of your mind. All your learning has, has put you out of your mind. What are you saying? And then what does Agrippa say? Would you in such a short time persuade me to be a Christian? Two very different responses to the gospel. Two very different responses. One is saying, you must be out of your mind, which some of you, by the way, don't say it, but live that way. You live like what's being said from this pulpit or what your parents told you about the gospel is too good to be true. And if it's too good to be true, it must be not true, right? And there you go, you live life. You guys are out of your mind. There, there's no way that this, this, this is a story. This gospel is a story. It's, 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 it's make-believe. And some of you here this morning are more like a gripper where you're like, I'm persuaded. I'm just struggling. I have, I'm there. I, I, I see what you're saying. I'm picking up what you're laying down. But would he take somebody like me? And my answer to you is yes. I don't know. I don't know anything more about a grip after this. I don't know if I'm going to be surprised the day I make it to heaven. But this gospel is for small and great. The gospel is for small and great. And the small and great can refer to one of two things. It could refer to age, meaning it could be for small, young, or great, old. Or it could be referring to rank, as in Festus and Agrippa. But regardless of where, 
How you interpret that, the point is the same. The gospel does not discriminate. Can you stop for a second and think? Can you imagine Stephen in heaven? That beautiful Israel that we see in Acts. Stephen professing Christ in heaven. And then later on you see Paul in heaven as well. If you're Stephen, what do you do? Now, yes, I know it's... <laughs> I'm imagining this because this doesn't stay in the scripture. And I know in heaven there's going to be no tears, there's, there's going to be joy. I get that. But humanly speaking, if you're Stephen, and you see the guy that stood by while you were getting stoned, coming through those same gates, coming, coming into heaven, what do you feel? See, that is where the, that's where it becomes real. Is, was the gospel equally for Paul or was it just for Stephen? That is what we need to understand that the gospel does not discriminate. Don't think for a second that somehow your co-worker, because they might be homosexual, they might be trans, they might be whatever, that somehow the gospel is not for them. They need the gospel as much as you need the gospel. Yes, you are heterosexual. You need the gospel as well. And that is what we need to understand that that, that, is the, that is what the gospel is. Undeserved grace. And that call is for many of you here this morning. You've heard your parents tell you. You've heard your parents over and over again. You've heard it from this pulpit. Would you believe? Would you believe in Jesus? Would you come to him? And for some of you, walking many years, 20 years, 15 years, 30 years in your faith, 40 years in your faith, you still need the gospel too. You're not, it's not because I walk, the, the more I walk, the less gospel I need. No, no, no. Because the more you walk, quite frankly, the more you realize, the, the more gospel you need. And so that is the beauty of the gospel message. What is God up to? God is redeeming his people. His pains, all he says, my desire is that you would be like me, except for these chains. Everything else, that you would come to know Christ. Paul had a heart for his own people. He says, I'd rather be accursed if it means that one of my countrymen can come to know Christ. I'd rather be cut off completely if that's what it means that they come to know Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. Is that his Are you there? You've been given this purpose then. And I, God couldn't have planned it any better because that is exactly what we're about to hear. That's exactly what we're about to hear with the testimony. And I'm not, I don't want to spoil it for you because they'll tell you in their own words, and I have it up here, by the way, but you have to understand that Jesus and Mariana did not just wake up one morning and feel like they were Christians. You will not hear that in their testimony. You will hear the opposite. And so, without me spoiling it, allow me to pray. And I would ask both of you to come up um, and, and share your testimony. Father, uh, 
again, this is your word. Um, you know, I'm in all my sin and my lack even of understanding because your word is spiritual. I, unless your Holy Spirit works in me and works in your people, who can understand? That's why we commit ourselves to you. We commit ourselves to you and we continue committing ourselves to you. And I just ask, Father, that your word, that your word would be practical to the lives of your people. That, Father, that they wouldn't just be consumed with their theology. As, as great in theology, as great as doctrine is, Father, may your people live your word. May they proclaim your word. Without this discriminating against who they're going to proclaim it to. Because you didn't discriminate against us. You saw us. And you extended your grace and your mercy to us. How can we keep from singing your praise and from proclaiming your word to us? Forgive us when we have done that. Forgive us when we have judged. Forgive us when we have just completely put people aside and marginalized people because we thought they were undeserving. Work in our hearts, Lord. Teach us. Not just number our days. Or remind us, Lord, that there will be a day when that buzzer will go off. And all of us will have to render an account. Father, may your children be found with works that they can just cast upon your feet. Because they desire to make your name known. That they desire to make the name of Christ famous. But that is only a work of your spirit. And so I ask, Father, that you would do that in the hearts of your people. And Father, as we hear these testimonies, may you remind us once again of our own testimonies of where we were. May we be reminded of your undeserved grace, not just in the lives of Jesus and Mariana, but of us in our church and this small community of believers. Thank you, Lord, for reaching out to us and showing us your mercy and your grace and your unconditional love. In Christ's name, amen.